Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Colin Carroll. He is the Director of Government Relations at Applied Intuition, which enables autonomous vehicles through simulation, development, and validation. Before that, Colin had a number of positions, including Chief Operating Officer at the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, Mission Integration Lead for Project MAVEN, and 10 years of operational experience in the Marine Corps. Colin, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Yeah, Eric, thanks for having me here. It's good to be with you here in beautiful Roslyn. So can you introduce us to how your military career started to intersect with the world of artificial intelligence? Easy. So a couple things to know about me. First, I'm an engineer by background. So I studied aerospace engineering at the Naval Academy, and then I was an autonomous systems engineer at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Second, I'm a warfighter. So spent a lot of time active duty in the Marine Corps, still in the Marine Corps Reserve in the Marine Innovation Unit. And then third, I'm an eternal optimist who tries to build capability and deliver it to the warfighter. My story about how I joined Project Maven back in 2017. By the way, when did Project Maven officially get kicked off? Yeah, Bob Work approved Project Maven, the algorithmic warfare cross-functional team in May 2017. So you were one of the initial people. I joined in June. Yeah, when I joined the team, it was an active duty Marine colonel, Drew Kukor a few Marine reservists, and then myself. So it was a team of Marine reservists. Let's see. But why Marines? Was there a reason? I think Drew Kukor was just mostly familiar with and comfortable with Marines, and he brought a team of people he'd worked with in the past to try and get going quickly. So So hand-selected team. You don't... It's like like the RCO kind of model, huh? I think he knew. I think, yeah, it's very similar. I think he knew who in his past life he had abused and who could put up with it. (laughs) for 20 hour days for seven days a week. And he brought those people on the team. So for me in particular, I'm an intelligence officer. I did five years active duty in the Marine Corps. And then I did five years doing some other work for the joint force. I had worked with Drew Kukor previously and he called me in May, 2017, right after Bob work had approved the, the AWCFT or what became Project Maven. And he said, hey, Colin, can you come be my counterintelligence officer. I'd done a little bit of time in the Pacific working deception against China. And he's like, hey, we need a deception plan here for our AI program. And I got there on day one. And what I realized was he had a like a one-page sheet of paper signed by Bob Work and 10 PowerPoint slides. And that was Project Maven. And I, what I really quickly realized was what he needed was a systems engineer to run the development process. So I signed up for six-month orders and wound up being there for two and a half years doing something completely different. One of the things that I found out about you that was pretty cool is that you made it to a senior executive service in the government at the ripe young age of 31. (laughs) So can you just talk about what you learn in that experience at such a young age? Yeah, I was a government civilian, a federal civilian for a while prior to coming to Project Maven. So that's something people don't really know about me. I was in the Department of the Navy. When I joined Maven, I actually joined as a reservist, but I was still a technically a, a federal civilian. I didn't actually become an SES. I became what's called an HQE, a high-quality expert. So it's very similar to 
an SCS. It's the same rank, but it's a non-competed hire. And there's a whole set of rules that go with it. And there's HQEs allocated to different parts of the department. I personally think that HQEs should be allocated to more parts of the department down at the service levels example for a PEO, which they're not right now. Right now, the HQE billets are all held up at OSD or at the service headquarters. So an HQE basically means you've got uh, some kind of technical background, typically technical in industry or somewhere else. And you're bringing something to the department that, that they typically can't find when they just hire out on USA jobs. So my kind of view on life is I'm out here in industry now at applied tuition. And that wasn't, that wasn't my choice. I was actually fired from the Department of Defense about a year ago. Let's take a pause real quick. Okay. So this past weekend, I went for a run here in Roslyn. And uh, you mentioned that you run. So we ran down the trail out of Roslyn and we went down to the Teddy Roosevelt Island. I lived here my whole life and I've run around that island, I don't even know, 500 times in my life. I've never actually stopped at the memorial. And so my wife, Kati, she was born and raised in Ukraine. So she's never been to the island. She said, hey, let's go check out the memorial. So we ran over to the memorial. And there's a great quote there. It's something that we memorized freshman year at the Naval Academy called The Man in the Arena. It's a Teddy Roosevelt quote. And basically it says, the credit goes to the person who's actually in the fight, on trying to get stuff done. I've kind of lived my whole life like that. And you can define the arena differently. In this case, I, I typically define the arena as like in the Pentagon, actively trying to make a difference. I'm not there now. I'm in industry now, trying to make a difference from the outside. And everybody defines their arena differently, depending on the ecosystem that you're in. So my words of advice to anybody who's trying to join the government is it's daunting. There's a lot broken. It's very hard to fix some of the things that are broken. However, there are opportunities, things like Project Maven, where we can use new and interesting authorities, use top cover from some senior beauty officials and leaders to actually move really quickly and build something and deliver it to the warfighter. So that's my goal in life. And someday I'll be back in the DOD. Maybe let me just poke on that a little bit. What's your definition of being in the fight then? Because I spent a number of years in the Pentagon, but I wouldn't have necessarily felt myself like I was in the fight. I was collecting data reports from contractors and you feel pretty separated from the mission because your mission feels like the process when you're in the building sometimes. And maybe that's just my perspective coming from where I came from. But how would you think about like who's in the fight and who's not in the fight? (laughs) Yeah, I think that everybody in that building is in the fight. To be quite honest, I work at Applied Intuition. I think about Applied Intuition day on stay on every day and how to grow the business here. And the fight that we're in is slightly different from the fight of being in the Pentagon. But at the end of the day, I think my heart and passion are still back in the building because at the end of the day, no matter how hard we try here at Applied Intuition, no matter how many great ideas we have and the great capability that we build, if on the other end of that is a pro- program manager that has no idea how to build a program or deliver capability or is in that process, even if they want to do a good job, they're just stuck in the POM cycle and the PPV process doesn't really matter. I do think that the fight at the end of the day is in the building and it's how do we, how do we, the Royal, we ensure that the right people are in the right positions there to break through some of the log jams that pop up. My advice to younger people trying to get into the government is definitely go for it. It can be disheartening. It can be frustrating. We were talking about it when you first came in, right? You were super frustrated there. And I guess I've been lucky in my career in the sense that I've gone to organizations where the people really cared and the people were okay with 
going to their sugar daddies, if you will, at the senior levels and ensuring that they had the top cover to, I don't want to say bend the rules, but be flexible with the rules and authorities in order to move really quickly. And that's even prior to Maven. I was in a different organization that, that was super flexible prior to Maven. Core, when he started Maven, he brought some of those same people in because he knew that they had that mindset. And it's the mindset of, hey, the left and right lateral limits say this. However, the warfighter needs something now. So how can we get to yes in order to build something and deliver it to them? I think a lot of the cases where I'm on the outside now looking in, we primarily deal with the Department of the Army. There are some great PMs and PDMs in the Army, product managers in the Army. I consider them unicorns. They're super enlightened. They want to move quickly. They've had different backgrounds than the kind of I've worked in Detroit Arsenal my entire life. Some of them came from DARPA, some of them came from SCO, and they're okay with industry suggesting them alternative pathways to acquire commercial technology. And then we look at the rest of the PDMs and, and PEOs, which is, hey, I'm going to do my major program over a seven-year timeline. I'm going to put RFIs out to industry over three years and then do an award, and then I'll get block upgrades for the next 30 years, every five years, and all the warfighters hate what I delivered to them. And that's the dichotomy there. So how do we educate more of the PMs to be like some of the unicorn enlightened PMs? And what we've seen is it takes one win from one person to then motivate or incentivize some of the other PMs and PDMs to say, hey, I want to be like that guy. That guy got a lot of publicity and press. He did something unique and different. And I want my star too, or I want to be an 062. And so they'll latch onto that pathway. So we'll see how this plays out over the next year or two. So you think one of the complaints has always been no one gets rewarded for taking any risk, but just getting like an article and breaking defense or something like that you think that's actually helping push the needle or have you seen people get rewarded in their career for making these moves? We just had a little conference last week and Bill LaPlante, the acquisition executive was there and he was like, look, none of, no one was taking anything seriously until 2009. Like the Pentagon and the acquisition folks weren't at war until someone lit a fire under their asses with the MRAP and the rest of it. Do you see that kind of starting to come around today with the great power competition and the rest? I think that in order for people to recognize that we are at war on the whole, like the larger than the 3% of people in the building that do get it, will it need to be actually in, in conflict? So I don't think that we're in the 2009 moment yet where you have a sec def that's basically breathing fire down on a service and the OSD staff to deliver something quickly against their entire soul and being, which is how they always operate. I don't think we're at that point. From a incentivizing PM's perspective when it comes to taking risks, I think it's at a personality and individual level at this point. So it depends on the organization, but when you're at the services, at the PEOs, 90% of the PMs and PDMs and PEOs just grew up in that system. Right. If you're lucky, you got one that was out at a joint R&D organization, potentially learned something out of, outside the normal acquisitions effort. Those people we tend to see take risks. And I'm not even talking like really big risks, but at the end of the day, they're judged and promoted based on their ability to work within the system that they're in. So yeah, I don't see a lot of change coming anytime soon there. Let's talk a little bit about acquisition approaches. So you were at Project Maven, which, you know, is a project with a defined kind of like output, mission output. And then you're also at the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, which does a whole bunch of things. But can you talk a little bit about how was 
the acquisition approach to artificial intelligence and machine learning different at each of those organizations, if at all? You have to go back to the charter for both of those organizations. So Maven, the algorithmic warfare cross-functional team, was literally designed to accelerate purely AI capability development for geospatial intelligence to warfighters. It didn't inherit a lot of the, I'll call it baggage, but a lot of the other tasks, something like the Jake inherited, which was how to train and educate a workforce, AI policy to include international policy, acquisitions policy. So Maven was able to stay very lean. It was mostly reservists with some detail and then some contractors in the office. And the way that they operated was they gave all of their money to industry to develop and field AI capability. And AI capability ranges from the data management, data acquisition, all the way through a platform in a warfighter's hands that's more of a common operating pick on the Intel side. Jake took its money and hired 300 people. I think when I left the Jake, there were 300 people. I couldn't tell you what 200 of those people did. I didn't know them. They all worked under me somewhere, but I didn't know what they did. Now, that's, some of that's probably in just the nature of onboarding 150 people during COVID. A lot of it's the nature of what Congress and the department tasked the Jake to do. The Jake was not a capability development program. It did some capability development. And because the Jake was, it was such a wide spectrum of what it was supposed to deliver. When I joined the Jake, I think there were something like 30 capability development projects. And it was all, a lot of it was what a DTLE brought up from their service. I viewed the Jake as an organization with the giant J in front of it which meant that we should be doing things that impacted the joint force and IPPLs from the combat commands and joint requirements. However, the people in the Jake mostly came from services, were detailed there, and they brought like a hobby project with them from a service. So we spent a lot of time trying to undo some of that, shrink from 30, 35 projects down to less than 15. I think we got down to 13. The Jake, for everyone out there, the Jake doesn't exist anymore. It's now the chief digital AI office. It's part of that organization. I believe that CDAO, went even further and hacked down some of the projects. I would have loved to hack it down to five, but people got upset with me getting it down to 13. When you take someone's money away, they tend not to be happy about it. So yeah, I mean, that that's those are the two major differences, right? It's just two different responsibilities and what they're supposed to do. And one of the things that we often heard from the Jake was their joint common foundations and laying the kind of like infrastructure, so to speak, for the rest of the department. And they would actually, their projects, the ones that they did have, were really designed to be pushed down back to the services and in coordination with the services. Can you just talk a little bit about at least that data aspect part? What were they doing there? And where's the department today in terms of data? Yeah. How about this? Without even going into applications, which are relatively cheap and easy to develop, we have programs in the department that are autonomy programs, i.e. the program office has a requirement to deliver some kind of unmanned capability, autonomous, semi-autonomous, this decade to a warfighter where they have zero data. Zero data. They've not collected any data from any of the current enduring or legacy systems that are out driving, flying, or sailing. No one spent money to do that. Where there are sensors on those vehicles, either the data is dying on the vehicle, it's never actually coming off, or it's dying at some local training center somewhere. However, we're about to invest billions of dollars in procuring systems that are supposed to be autonomous. One of the things I always, I joke, John Mark loves this, I want to put PM or PDM, who's responsible for an autonomy program, on a school bus 
and drive them to Tesla and drop them off there for two months and have them observe how commercial industry sets up an autonomy development platform. Data is critical. Most of these programs spent years strapping sensors on Ford Fusions and driving around collecting data before they even started development, or at least in parallel with the development. So that's one of the key things that I think I observe every single day. And in Applied Intuition, we're trying to enable some of these PMs to understand that this is really critical. They're not going to get what they want by just pumping money out to industry. They need to actually design their program properly. When it comes to something like the CDAO or Jake or Maven, where it's more of like a software application, there's not a platform involved. I'm a fan of doing iterative software development and getting it to a warfighter for feedback from the warfighter in parallel with your like development platform. Where I saw a lot of problems was the development platform just never happened, right? It was the shiny object, get something to a warfighter without that other foundational piece being built in parallel. That's a bad thing. That's a fail. When it comes to something like Maven, Maven is $257 million a year, RDT&E. A lot of that went to industry. Probably $100 million of that was on the DevSecOps platform side. So data acquisition, data curation, data labeling. Maven had a team of 400 data labelers annually, eight-hour shifts, just labeling geo and data from all different platforms, all different sensors. Unclassified, classified. There's no other program in the department that's even remotely looking like that. And it's because they either don't know or they've got a limited budget and they're on the hook to deliver 12 prototype tanks or 12 prototype airplanes. And so that's where the money is going. We know how to do that really well. The program offices that are supposed to deliver those things know how to do that really well. What they don't understand is how to build software, sustain software for the life cycle of a program. They don't understand, hey, I need to be able to build this enterprise foundational platform that's continually iterating on and delivering software to my weapon system. To me, looking at it now, a lot of these individual programs are trying to build this. There's not an enterprise look at like the army level or even at a PEO level to say, hey, we're going to take money from some programs and invest in an enterprise system here that's going to that's going to deliver this software capability for 30 years. It's just not. It's like the tragedy of the commons. Nobody wants to take their money and invest in something that might benefit the guy next to them or the guy next to them or God forbid, another PEO that's four hallways down in the same building. It's just the nature of the beast that we're in. Well, potentially that type of data collection wasn't built into the program requirements and program funding, and they'll just be like, I'm not funded, I'm not funded to do that. It sounds great, but go find me another $100 million, and then I'll be happy to go do it. Is that kind of what you hear? Or I, the Jake was supposed to, or the CDAO now, have their joint common foundations, yeah. Is that too high of a level or why yeah, is that let's, not let's, ch- let's chat enterprise enterprise development and then the current state of things. So yes, the Jake was supposed to deliver the JCF. I have my personal opinions about the JCF and all I'll say is the JCF is no more. I heard it this weekend. It oh, is really? no more. There you go. Broke well, you some heard news it here first. Uh. <laughs> Broke some news for you. JCF is no more. They have a thing called the JCN, the joint cloud neutral. And we can talk about that separately, but the JCF, the Deloitte Prime contract, is no longer refunded. The CDAO is consolidated to a couple of different development environments that the DOD spent a lot of money and resources on already. And so that absolutely makes sense to me. So there is no AI enterprise capability development at this point. Maven spent a lot of money on professionalizing a network called SunNet, Secure and Classified Network, that's owned by ASD Solik. 
when I mean a lot of money, they put a lot of GPUs in. This is a hybrid cloud on-prem in Ashburn plus GCP, AWS, Azure. Probably $150 million went into that network to professionalize it for imagery, computer vision, neural net processing. Maven's biggest failure was creating a massive labeled data set. I think the numbers of labeled frames are CUI, but it's in the 100 million plus, but not providing that to the rest of the department as, a, as an enterprise resource, or even enabling the department to onboard to it so that they could use the data. And there's a whole host of personality reasons why that happened and why it went like that. Where, we, where I see the future is R&E, USD R&E, they were approved from CAPE actually to start what they're calling AI hubs, which are basically enterprise AI development environments by technology area. So one for computer vision, one for natural language processing, one for robotics process automation. And their charter is to, I don't know if they're going to bring data to a centralized data location, if they're just going to enable data access across a number of different data environments and then enable research engineering to come in. So your ac academic, the service labs, to access large quantities of compiled data starting in 2023. We'll see how this goes going forward. It's a bit of money. It's not a lot of money. So we'll see. But right now, these don't exist. And honestly, if I was a PM, I would say there's a lot of risk in relying on these things that may or may not exist. My service is telling me I can't use something like Advana, which is a joint network, or Sunnet, which is a joint network. I need to use Platform One if I'm in the Air Force, or COEUS, or C Army if I'm in the Army, or Black Pearl if I'm in the Navy. All of these environments are years behind and hundreds of millions of dollars behind in some cases what the department's already invested in. So they're kind of stuck. We're doing a kickoff this week with the Army. It's out of DIU and then the robotics combat vehicle. They've been told, hey, you must use an Army network for development. We've talked to the Army networks and I will spend my time and effort and money to enable these Army networks to grow in the next six months to 12 months. But the reality is the right answer for the department is me making a phone call and introducing them to Platform One or to SunNet. Where the money's already been invested, we could start doing work in, in four weeks, but there's service politics involved. And I'm over here in industry just saying, you point me in the right direction, we're gonna, you're gonna pay me, I'm gonna do what you want me to do, whether it's the right thing for the department or not. So it sounds like you have matrix of approaches here. You have the data potentially starting to be centralized according to these verticals by the R&E. Then you have like the development platforms and ops processes, which are dispersed through the services themselves. And then you also have the other applications and mission outcomes that will ride on top of those. Does that sound about right? That's like the, the ecosystem? I think that's the theory. I think it'll be interesting to see R&E by its nature defaults back to research. And if you look at who's in R&E, it's researchers. And so there's nothing against researchers, but they're not, hey, I'm going to build production software. So I think at the end of the day, if we assume that there, there will be a conflict this decade or even relatively sooner this decade then basically we're fighting with systems that we have today. They're not really gonna change, there might be some changes, but on the whole, it's gonna be hardware that we have today. So how can we then enable rapid software updates to that hardware? And that's gonna be a PM thing. They're the people that are closest to the fight. They have the requirements from the warfighter to procure and deliver right now. Everything else I think is ethereal and maybe we'll deliver something, maybe we won't deliver something, but I wouldn't be relying on it if I was a PM.
You talked a lot about the data that needs to be labeled and then actually is it owned by the government? And this is one of my questions here because we've been hearing a lot about government moving towards these government controlled baselines for autonomy. In all this, you mentioned the robotic combat vehicle and the army. They have their own autonomy core system, Skyborg in the Air Force, the unmanned efforts in the Navy. They have their autonomy baseline manager. Are they also controlling all the data? It's like government own data as well that feeds all that stuff or what's going on with that government controlling of this baseline for the autonomy and what's your view there i have views on the three efforts and how they're setting up but i'll start by this which is you just asked me about is the government controlling data and my question to you eric is what data you're making a huge assumption that those programs are acquiring and labeling data and even recognize that's a problem from my observation both in the government a year ago and then the last year here in industry is that nobody is thinking that. Does the industry have any data on this? So most of the DOD's data is out in industry and it's owned by whoever the current kind of incumbents are on some of these contracts. I think the interesting thing is if you're doing a bake-off between, let's say take Skyborg, you've got four different vendors making air platforms. I think they've narrowed it down to one or two. Skyborg is dead, but there's follow-ons to Skyborg out of AFRL. On the whole, when those companies flew their prototype vehicle, one, they're collecting very little limited data. That thing might fly once a month for a couple of days. And then two, any data that was collected is at each disparate vendor. And that's just how the contracts were written. And they're proprietary data. Yeah, if the vendor collected it, they own it. Yep. There are some instances probably where something's flying at like a red flag or something like that, and maybe the data is being collected. I look at like where is the aerial data now. Maven has a lot of it coming off of combat weapon systems that were deployed in Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Somalia, places like that. And that, that's government-owned? Like, they just pay yeah. contractors to help yeah. label and manage it, but they that's their data? Yeah, I'll putting my government hat on, Maven did it right. So there's a couple reasons to acquire and manage government data on a government network. The biggest reason is so that industry can't take it and sell it back to the next guy down the hall which is what industry loves to do. I have numerous examples of one company that will go unnamed, selling, basically selling the exact same AI computer vision models to Pack Fleet, Office of Naval Research, Seventh Fleet, and everyone's paying a lot of money for a commercial model that the government's basically been handing data to this company and that is selling the result back. That's insane to me. What Maven did was they set up a government environment, they set up government labelers, and then they enabled commercial industry to come into that environment and train models. I don't really see that happening anywhere else. And to be quite frank, like when we talk to some of the programs, they don't even understand that at all. They're just like, I want to give money to industry. And they're going to give me back a plane with a model on it. They don't care how, it, how the model got built or developed. And what the end result from that, another program that will go unnamed, is that industry will deliver a model based on requirements from the government. So an AI model where the government doesn't really understand test and evaluation. So how do I ensure that this model works or not? And so they get back a model that performs in a very limited environment because of how the government issued its test and evaluation metrics. Now, if you took that thing out of its very limited environment at Edwards Air Force Base, for example, and had it fly anywhere else on the planet against any environment where you have trucks and school buses and people walk around and rocks and trees, it would never perform. But because it was X range at Edwards Air Force Base, where you have only ground order battle Soviet systems out there, 
hey, it works 80% of the time, which is what we needed to have it do. And there's no way for the government to then say, okay, now we're out in this new operational design domain. I need to work with rocks and school buses for that vendor to then say, oh, I have the whole platform. You can actually start feeding data in, labeling it, developing a model. Like they didn't do any of that work either. That doesn't exist at their end. So there's no you know, BAE or Raytheon or General Dynamics that set up a software development foundry like, like Elon did at Tesla. It doesn't exist. Since you both have the government and the kind of industry view here, we often hear from industry, right, that intellectual property is their lifeblood. But if the government, let's just say they adopt the Maven model, they have the autonomy core system that's supposed to be like, hey, I can swap in and out vendors. And that keeps competition alive, obviously. So how do you see that working? Does that business model work for industry as well if they are just like, you give me the data, I'm just doing my this part of the value stream here in terms of creating the model and delivering it back to you they're not going to be able to capture more of the value stream and be able to have that kind of moat potentially against others who might be all running from the same kind of kernel if you will what's your view on like this dichotomy of who owns the ip rights and the data rights and where that sits all right my view on data rights here in industry when we talk to staffers or we talk to senior acquisitions executives in the department here and everybody says, what about competition? How's the competition? I joke that our biggest competition for the last year has been the Department of the Army. My commercial software competing against GOT software that's built by GS12s in Detroit or their kind of CETA contractor, contract equivalents. And it's different. It depends what you want as a program office. If you want something that's had hundreds of millions of dollars of investment on the commercial side, plus thousands of reps and exists now, then you'll accept the risk and say, hey, I'm willing to do a commercial license and bring this into my program. On the R&D, so we see, honestly, a year ago, I used to joke and say, it's gonna be really difficult to sell into the Department of the Army because of things like robotics technology kernel. What we've seen in the last year though, is a drastic shift from the program offices that are required to deliver real capability. So production software on 3000 vehicles, by 2028 to be very open to commercial software and commercial licenses. Then it's, this isn't, it'll probably trend in the news here as we go over the next six months because the program offices aren't coming right out and saying, this is what we're doing. But what you're seeing is a twofold kind of response. One is I'm not sure I trust the R and D capability that my service or the joint force has been doing for the last five years. It's very non-production, very researchy. And also, I'm not sure I trust the big hardware OEMs to deliver software. The Army in particular has a couple programs with requirements for autonomy or AI that are doing a separate hardware acquisition pathway and a separate software acquisition pathway. And so I'm super interested to see how this plays out. I think that there's a lot of value in bringing commercial companies who've invested a lot of venture capital and getting to the point that they are at where the army maybe has not done that. I think that the big risk is going to be a couple of years from now, you've got a big hardware OEM that's on the hook to make a air vehicle or a ground vehicle. And then you've got traditional or non-traditional software companies, some kind of mix there, maybe a systems integrator. And now you have to merge those things together. And on the whole, most of these hardware platform providers are not super accustomed to or probably willing to willingly in integrate someone else's software onto their vehicle. 
and the government then becomes the systems integrator and the people that have designed these programs will all be have moved on two years from now so you'll have somebody else in the seat as the pdm or peo or pm so i'm not sure how that's going to play out it's going to be an interesting experiment i'm cautiously optimistic though i guess in your philosophical view of acquisition does it make sense breaking some of these pieces out and having government whether it's with aceta or otherwise help put those pieces back together or because we've heard Calvelli from the Space Force, he just recently said government should never be doing that, at least in his view, in his service. So that lends it more itself more to, well, I'm just going to outsource this whole thing to Lockheed Martin and hope that the non-traditionals can work through that prime somehow. And so how do you yeah. see that? It depends how you see risk. The ability for the government to act as an SI comes down to having the right person. And on the whole, most of the people are probably not the right people. There are some organizations where that's not the case, a place like Strategic Capabilities Office. However, the selection process to become a PM there is very different from a service where it's just, I'm an acquisitions officer, I got trained, I do communications for a living, but now I'm running a major ground vehicle program. Why? Because that's the pipeline, that was the open spot, I got sent there. I'm here for a couple of years and I leave. So I do think it comes down to the ability of the person. I think from an acquisitions perspective, I've got my whiteboard here, but no one can see it, but I could draw up on the whiteboard my, my kind of view of acquisitions is a spectrum. One end of the spectrum is just hand the problem to Lockheed or Boeing or General Dynamics. On the other end of the spectrum is a software company primes next-gen tank. I don't think either of those are the right answer. I think a really interesting example of a software company primes a hardware program is like Microsoft with IVAS. And I think on the whole, I don't, I'm not fully read into that. I've never seen the IVAS, but like on the whole, I think most people would say probably not the biggest success. In the middle, you have this software pathway, hardware pathway split where software companies make software and hardware companies make hardware. And then someone's going to integrate that at the end. And I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's a subbing the software to the hardware. Maybe it's the government acts as an SI. Maybe it's a software systems center comes in and both sub to that. I'm not sure how they're going to do that over the years. I think... The interesting thing is like the spectrum between a software company primes a, a major program and the split, which is, are there certain companies that exist now that are probably non-traditional that make hardware and software, but do their development in a very agile manner? So even the hardware that they're making and the kind of mindset that they bring to the problem is very rapid and iterative. And I think the sharp companies, you'll hear them called that, like they tend to fit in this mold here. So I think it would be super interesting to see one of those companies potentially priming a major hardware program. I think we'll probably see that in the next five years. And that'll be another experiment. Can they do it? It takes a long time to be able to make a manned aircraft or a manned ground vehicle. I think on the unmanned side, maybe some of the safety requirements are a little bit less and there's things that you could get away with there that you couldn't get away with on the manned side. So I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, the hardware-software integration is an issue. I wonder, from your perspective, does like the Army with the robotic combat vehicle, for example, is that easier to split apart because there's like more standard drivetrains and a lot of like ground vehicle data in the commercial sector versus if you do it for Skyborg or Navy, where there's potentially less of that going on already because like the commercial market's not all in on on a combat UAV that can go close to Mach 1. So that data doesn't exist. So does one, does it, does 
the state of the commercial sector and those kind of interfaces have a... Yeah. I think on the ground vehicle side, you'll see more traditional commercial software companies in that space. And that's because a lot of venture capital and then obviously the on-road data collection, everything that goes there over the last decade has created some software companies that are very good at this and are interested in doing this similar problem in a DOD. So there's not a lot of off-road ground vehicle data that exists on the ground side. On the air side, there actually is a lot of data. Government owns a lot of data. Why? Because MQ9s, MQ1s been flying for 25 years and they're Intel assets, they're ISR assets. So the Intel community has saved this data. This is what Maven spent a lot of time labeling. This is why Maven has so much labeled data. And honestly, then the department has a lot of labeled data and it's for camera, it's for radar, it's for ELINT payloads. There may not be as many commercial companies that will be in that space. However, there are a lot of software companies, traditional defense software companies that are in that space. And so I think the split will still be there or still could be there between a software company and a air vehicle manufacturer. It just might not be some commercial automotive software company that, that had $400 million in VC investment. It might be something else. I want to talk about just like the size and, and scope of some of these AIML types of programs. I saw in a Govini report that the DOD's total AIML and autonomy programs were roughly $2 billion overall. And I believe Maven, as you said, might be the largest of those efforts, over $200 million. Does that, first of all, does that amount sound about right to you or where's the department? Yeah, on that? I remember this Govini study. The Jake did a similar study with a MITRE tool where the department volunteered what was an AI. Honestly, my guess is that the $2 billion is probably overestimating how much money is truly going into AI in the department. Really? Yeah, because AI is a buzzword. People put AI in their CAPE slide or the J-Doc, budget request, yeah. their JDOC request because it, it, they think it's gonna get them money. And probably they're right. But like, is it truly AI? I don't know. The department is, it's traditionally three to four years behind commercial anyway. And then the use cases for AI and autonomy in the department are potentially more narrow than a lot of what's going on out in commercial. So I don't expect it to be the exact same. I look at it and say, from industry perspective, when we look at like the Army or the Air Force, there's actually quite a bit of money going into autonomy and then the perception aspect of AI that's really the applied AI that goes into an autonomy stack. I don't think it's an issue of the funding coming in. I think it's an issue of the PMs don't really understand how to design a program properly so that they can actually build software and then sustain like iterative development and delivery of that software to a program. I also think that there are n number of projects, a lot of them are R&D projects across the joint force and the services that repeat the exact same thing. One of the things that always kills me, killed me at Maven, and I didn't know much about AI when I started Project Maven. I didn't know much about the state of the service labs and their projects. But what I really quickly learned is that the department was investing a lot in what they were considering to be basic research, applied research, so TRL one through four, when commercial was well past that already. And I still see that today. We will go to the kind of mid-TRL organizations in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and we'll see the, the work that they're doing. And it's, guys, you're three years behind where we are right now. Like you would actually save money counterintuitively by getting rid of 100 people that sit in this building 
than all the money that's coming in there and just buying an enterprise license. You, you would advance your capability development by three years. You give the program off something that they need right now, and you'd actually save 85% of your resources. But it's just not people don't think that way, right? They think I've got my bodies of 100 people and they're all, it's my baby project that I'm working on. Why would I stop this and go buy something that's already commercially available? So it does, it kind of makes me sad from a taxpayer perspective. That's just the way government is, right? The budgets are an entitlement budget. You're entitled to it. You got the fit up unless someone's going to cancel you, right? Because it was so clear because commercial industries are here. You could just buy the license. It's hard to make that case. And they'll say you're not meeting ABCDE requirements. One of the things I've seen a lot and seems to be concerning is um, these tight specifications from DOD for non-traditional solutions. So they'll be like, okay, the non-traditional, they can give you 80% of the capability of the requirement, but like at 20% of the cost or something like that. And maybe it actually does a bunch of other requirements that the government didn't think about. But because you missed that 20%, they could fend you off. The staff officers and the joint staff said, I needed this, and this is the requirement. It is required. It is not a, it's nice to have mint. So what's your view on how DOD can better collaborate with industry or non-traditionals to get those? If you can do 80% for 20% of the cost, like that's a major trade-off, but it's also a major benefit potentially. You can just field a lot more. Yeah. Oh man, I could go for hours on this one. Kath Hicks, maybe four or five months ago, she did an industry roundtable out in Silicon Valley and there's 16 companies and they are all as non-traditionals like us. And everyone's complaining. It's hard to get money from the government. It's really hard, blah, blah. And she basically said, I hear you, but it's not really my problem. And that created a little bit of uproar. There was like some articles. It was people that, Well, she also said, people have been thinking about this forever and I just landed here. I'm right. not going to be able to solve right. it. I'm not going right. to be able to solve your problem overnight. There was some consternation out there and yeah. I actually got a good laugh out of that and I was like, right on. Because the bottom line is working in the Department of Defense and with Department of Defense is hard. Even with these acquisition reforms, et cetera, okay, that gets published in 2024 and we'll see results from that in 2027. And by that point, we've already, we're in the conflict. So it's like irrelevant. My advice to companies like mine is hire people like us here in this DC office who understand how to take a commercial software and work within the current constructs of the POM and PPB and everything else, how the government acquires capability, because that is the way to actually bring your capability into the department. Complaining and like hoping for things like Cyber and all these other, like, yes, I got it, but that's not gonna, it's not gonna save the end of the day. The other thing I think I'm gonna say that's probably controversial coming from a small business who's non-traditional is at the end of the day, we win in conflict, not by companies like mine and not by Cyber and not by reforming Cyber, which is, I don't know, half a percent of the DOD's budget. We win by the big primes being able to produce hardware with a software mindset and iterate on the software within that hardware. It is going to be a production problem and it is going to come from the companies like Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed. And if I were looking at how to reform acquisition and incentivize innovation, I would be looking at things like independent research and development and how to incentivize these companies to invest their own dollars a lot more than they already are to transition their mindset of how they currently view the world, which is incentivized by the POM and how programs are run now to something else. That's how we win. 
Otherwise, we'll be four years from now and they'll still be doing it the way they do it. And everybody else will be out here complaining about how not they can't break in. And maybe we'll make a couple reforms and we'll make some different pathways for companies like mine to enter the DOD, but it won't actually make a difference. Honestly, the other option is it's 2028 and we go to war, everything dies in the first 48 hours and we're stuck having to procure differently because we've lost 50% of everything that we had. And I don't really think that we want to be in that situation. So let me just poke on that a little bit because you said these non-traditionals, these new companies, they need to kind of work through the system and understand how to get into the palm and do all that contracting stuff. So going back to my question, instead of expecting the government to do something differently, you're saying the non-traditionals just need to get at the front end of that system and say, no, that requirement was wrong. Let's just do the 80% requirement and then kick off that, that process. Because that could take another couple of years before like money is actually available through that, hey, just go through the regular process. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you want to start it all the way back at the requirement, then you're right. Where I think Applied Intuition's done a great job is finding those programs that have the requirement already and are in some phase of procurement. And honestly, if you're in industry right now and you're, you've got a mature solution that you're selling commercially, most likely there is a requirement for you somewhere in the department already. It's not like you're, hey, we need this quantum computer in 2035 or whatever. And that's where we just, that does happen in some cases, but like on the whole, the requirement's there. It's just, finding the right way in. That's my recommendation. That's what we've seen work quickly. On the the industry side for the traditionals and their IRAD, one of the things that we've seen, there was that GAO report recently that was like, of the 12 emerging tech priority areas, the, the primes are basically not doing much of that, right? Like they're all in this kind of traditional stuff. And again, you can't really blame them, right? I want to put my IRAD to something that's gonna give me an ROI. And that's probably going to be Army, Navy, Air Force. What are you going to build a requirement for? Because I want to IRAD to what your requirement's going to be. And so when the money's there, now like I have the thing to, to fill that in. So they're not incentivized to take that kind of risk to build in the way that the iterative and blending of hardware and software. Just tell me what you want, because I know that when you say you want something, I'll build it for you. And that's how this works. Yeah, so I completely agree that the incentives aren't there. I think if you recall a couple months ago, there was the big kerfluffle about cyber reauthorization, right? Yep. And everybody got involved. And there were like former sec defs that their biggest priority was reauthorizing cyber. And I just laughed at that because it is basically irrelevant. E even with the cyber changes and reforms that they made, if you look at the POM and how the department budgets, builds capability, and then transitions to sustainment, Cyber is designed to fail every single time. You would have to be a PM that is perfectly aligned with the president's budget delivery, awarding your Cyber. 18 months later, you're getting funding for, and you've built all the requirements. Documents. 18 months later, it's like never going to happen. The biggest reform to Cyber they could do is extending it from 18 months to like three years. I'm dead serious. Yeah, meet the cycle time that- Jack yeah. the price up, deliver in three years, because if you're going to fit in the current acquisitions process that we have, that's the way to do it. The other option is reform the acquisitions process, which that's a really difficult problem that people have been talking about forever. And honestly, it won't happen between now and the time we fight. So if we had spent 50% of the effort and energy of the cyber reauthorization kerfuffle looking at IRAD, you, we actually could probably make some changes there. And I'm not an IRAD expert by any means. I've never worked at a large traditional company. We at Applied Intuition work with these companies. We'll take their IRAD and we'll build software for them and work with them 
but I do think there's changes that you could do in law to incentivize some of these companies to change their mindset with IRAD, spend more, look at the requirements differently. If R&E was looking at that instead of SIBR, I think we'd get more bang for our buck out of that. I really do. And that I say this and people are like, but you're a small business. Yes, I am. I also want to win and, and not speak Chinese. Yeah, maybe I'd like to get your view here on something else Bill LaPlante said that I think might cause a little bit of a, an uproar in, in the Twitter space. I saw the, t- the tweet links. What yeah, did he say? Le- yeah, so just briefly for our audience, he basically says, you know, what matters is production, and I need to get munitions into production at scale now. I don't care about your tech bro, AIML, or quantum thing. Where is that working at scale right now? If it's not, I don't care about it. I need things at scale. What's your reaction? I think that he is right when it comes to break glass and now we're in the fight. I think between now and then, my kind of meta larger point of we need munitions now is recognizing that we are going to fight with things that we have today. And that is a hard thing for people to understand. If it's flying, driving, or sailing, we're going to fight with that. On the whole, we are not going to have 3,000 of some 6th gen thing or some new ground vehicle or some unmanned platform. We're not going to have those things. What can the department do now? What can Congress do now to ensure that the things that are in development can be rapidly procured in production in 2026, 2027? It's things like I'm in an R&D phase, but I can award a break glass in case of production contract and ensure that money is pumped for or can be reprogrammed, like massive reprogramming to buy 1,000 of something or 10,000 of something in 2026. So I'm in my R&D cycle. I'm meeting my milestones. I don't have to go through massive DTOT. I accept the risk there and buy 1,000 and just have the contract ready to break. I don't think that exists anywhere. And there's probably a way to do it with like Defense Production Act. There's ways you could do that right now and modify some of the law to be able to award those contracts. And then it's, if the contract's good for 10 years, you just have to worry about interest and inflation and stuff like that. But that to me is an interesting way to do it. I think I didn't see Bill's comments on production, but he's right. If you look at Ukraine, they don't care. They want things in their hands. They're going to figure it out. But some of this issue to me as a non-technical person, if you have an AIML model that works in production... You can rapidly just get that out. So software is pretty much infinitely scalable. If I have this many vehicles, I can just duplicate that pretty quickly. But potentially, as you said, the department doesn't have these platforms. They just haven't been investing in the platforms at scale in order to get those models into production environments and quickly iterate through them. I was looking at some of the, just like the total investment, right? So we talked about the DOD maybe $2 billion is too high per year, right? Like maybe they're not really investing all that much money in these types of areas. But for a lot of the commercial companies, they will be spending like Waymo, Cruise, Motional, Tesla, Uber. They spend billions of dollars, up to $10 billion or more on their platform. Does DOD just not really understand the kind of scale or value that these uh, platforms can potentially drive? I think that the department is used to purchasing hardware and the hardware PMs grew up in a system and PEOs are in a they grew up in and are currently part of a system that builds and procures hardware. And so there is a complete lack of understanding in like how a Tesla or a Cruise builds an autonomous vehicle. They just 
they want to be able to hand a bunch of money to a big OEM and then they get something back. Those OEMs have also been a part of the system. So they don't fully understand, hey, how do I build a software development lab basically in order to, let's say I win the long-term production contract, I can then push my software up into the vehicle. So generally speaking, the commercial space is full of a bunch of competing OEMs that are trying to get to market faster and with the best product, the cheapest product. So you'll see like it's okay to double, triple, 70 times respend on the same platform because everyone has their own. You're not sharing across multiple OEMs. In my opinion, that is not actually okay for the department to do that. However, that's exactly what's happening. And it's not because they're competing. It's because they don't know what the guy right next to them or down the hall from them or in the next building over is doing in that same space. So you're taking $2 billion and you're spreading it out across a hundreds of different projects that are all doing the same thing poorly. If the department understood, hey, I, wanna, I want autonomous ground vehicles, that is a similar technical problem that requires similar data, a similar software technology. I'm going to then create an enterprise program to do that, not tied to the actual hardware of a tank or an OMFV or an RCV or a Striker or a Bradley or whatever they have, the Marine Corps, for example. They would save quite a bit of effort there quite a bit of money. So that's why I said, I think the amount of money that department's spending is actually not the issue. It's how they're allocating it and like how the programs are designed. I, as a leader, I'm a very top-down strategy person. I trust, I build teams of people that I trust. I let them do what they need to do to get the job done. But at the end of the day, I'm not like a grassroots, let's grassroots the strategy. At the Jake is a great example. We had one end of the organization that had the, I called it the funnel. It was a slide. It was the funnel, right? And basically the assumption of the funnel was the Jake doesn't know what to do because we don't understand how the joint force fights when it needs to win. So we'll just hang a shingle out that says the Jake is open for business. And then the services will provide us a thousand requirements. And then we'll go through some weird process and down select the 10 that we need to do the funnel or we say, hey, we're the joint force. We do a little bit of operational design about what we're supposed to do and where the gaps are and what the services aren't filling. And we invest our money to fill those gaps when it comes to either enterprise capability and like development environment or when it comes to an enterprise capability itself. I'm much more of the latter. So when it comes to problems within the department, I don't expect that the PMs and PDMs are going to fix these problems, right? These are top down. I recognize this as a problem. I'm going to take some money. People will be unhappy, but I'm going to build an enterprise capability that at the end of the day, everybody will be better for. And like, we're not seeing that. And what I just said to you is so foreign from how it's done now. Everybody's super hands off. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I remember I heard someone say something to the effect of how many China analysts do you need? Ultimately, if you have the right China analyst, you just need one. You don't need all these people coming in, cycling in for one or two years, and then like they learn something and then they leave and they're, they're not the China analysts. And then for these programs, it feels similar, right? You have this funnel and it always feels like they don't know what they want. It's like someone should know what they want. Someone with tenure and experience who has built a vision should know what they're trying to do here rather than say, no, I've built all these skills, but there's a requirement coming down and that's what I'm going to go do. So it feels, yeah, that, that, that funnel. Yeah, how many, how many three stars or Schedule C political appointees are you aware of that spent the last 25 years of their lives thinking, when I'm in charge of the AI or autonomy or X or Y or Z technical capability, 
when I'm in charge of delivering that for the department, this is what I'm going to do. I've been thinking about this for 20 years. Now I'm in charge. I got it. They don't Compare know what that. to do with the authority that they've been given. They don't even, they're just, they're the most qualified person at the time that the job came open and they filled in. Well, right? Balaji put it in this way. He was like, they are legitimate people. They were selected for their legitimacy, not because they are founders or have built the thing in the past and they've grown that way. I also, yeah, I also think just the way that the manpower system works in the Department of Defense so Colin's time is up after two years. He's yeah. out. Okay, who's a free agent out there in the pipeline up to that spot? Okay, who? It might not even be who's the most qualified. It's who's the the lottery, right? It's like someone just shows up. Who's the most available? I, I will say this: if you compare what I just said about how many people have spent the last twenty five years thinking about how I'm going to deliver this new capability of the warfighter and, and like at a joint level, think about it the other way: how many military officers have spent twenty five years is like when I'm in charge of the division or when I'm in charge of the squadron. That's what they're trained to do. Right. That's what their experience has led them to do. They've All their mentors and everything, is that is the pipeline to success. So we plug people in there and it works just great 95% of the time. We plug people in over in like this kind of new technology area. At the In the acquisitions parts of the services, most people grew up and that's what they know. So a hardware person does hardware. If you're lucky, maybe you got a software person that's now in the hardware acquisitions component. I don't know how you solve that problem. I do think that we talked about HQEs earlier. I think that there are ways to ensure that there are people that come in the Department of Defense for short periods of time, potentially for long periods of time, that are super, that are passionate, that are knowledgeable about the capability, have some warfighter experience background, or can bring those people in to advise them and can move really quickly. We talked about workforce management earlier. I always joke. There's the Eric Schmidt view of life. You had said something earlier about the government should never be a systems integrator. Right. You know what I always say? The government should never build software, ever. And I joke about this because Eric Schmidt is out there explaining how the basically the department's a software company because it's what he knows. It's how he approaches life. We need software academy and stuff like this. And it's, just, it's always weird to me. Like, dude, you ran Google. Google builds world-class software. Why would you ever have a bunch of like lieutenants and E4s and GS12 is building software for you. It doesn't make sense. You're just competing with industry that does this really well. So I look at what does the department need from a workforce management perspective? And from my perspective, it's probably with my bias, what we need are, are technical program managers or project managers, if you're in the R&D space, that have a background in the functional area that they're trying to deliver capability to, logistics targeting, intelligence, have a background in systems engineering, have a background in acquisition. That's who you're really looking for and have a background in industry, like those four things. Hire those people, bring them into the department and then have them write requirements or work with the people that are writing requirements and write their RFPs out to industry and then have industry build the actual, actual capability. I always see people as, hey, we need HQEs to bring in more PhD computer scientists. If you're a PhD computer scientist, what would you, why do you want to be in the department? Go work at Google or go work at a company that's working with the department. That's the right answer. Yeah, it's interesting. It was Eric Schmidt's visit that actually kicked off some of the consternation that led to Kessel Run, right? So then they got the in-house software. I want to you know, ask you, okay, so we have these leaders. They're potentially not like technical leaders in terms of delivering this specific capability, but they tend to use a lot of buzzwords and we hear all these buzzwords. What are some of the buzzwords going at around today? And what's your view on those? Oh man, what's, what are the latest buzzwords? 
It's been a, a year since I've been out of the department. I, the big one, it's still in the news now, is JADC2. So remember how we talked about, hey, $2 billion AI, we did a study, everyone just tags AI to their JDoc. JADC2 is the next, it's been like this for a couple of years, so it's not super new, but how do I tag what I'm doing to join all domain command and control? I feel very strongly about JADC2, having been at the Jake and having worked really closely with one of the combat commands in a previous life. I made a slide once, it was about a year ago actually, maybe a year and a half ago, where I was at the Jake, we were going to Cape and the DMAG trying to get money for a JADC2 capability development project. And the slide was bad C2, sad C2, JADC2. <laughs> and it really upset some people at the services and the Joint Staff J6. I got a nasty note from a general. The bottom line though is, I think where we've evolved to in the last year is you're starting to see service acquisition executives and some others saying, hey, maybe the services aren't 100% incentivized to deliver joint capability. They incentivize to do Title 10 mantra and equip for their service. And that's like a huge change to me. I don't know if it's a grassroots thing that services are recognizing or if there's more reading the kind of handwriting on the wall from OSD, which is, hey, you guys have done the best job with this and we're gonna be taking this away from you. We're not really sure what this looks like at the joint level yet. I think Congress is gonna weigh in here, but. They do have a program office that they're setting up some kind of like special program office for it. There's two things on going at the joint level. One is at ANS, and that's probably the program office that you're referring to. The other is at CDAO in the, the algorithmic warfare part of CDAO. And then I think Congress is looking at like maybe a joint program office. I think the Senate's looking at the joint program office. The House is looking at maybe keeping something in CDAO. We'll have to see how it plays out. But JADC2 is a really, it's just a broad problem. I mean, everything and every, anything is JADC2. So solving some of those distinct lines of effort and allocating them. We were at the SCSP event a couple months ago and Brandy Vincent from Defense FedScoop, something like that. She asked Kath Hicks a question and she said, hey, who's supposed to be doing JADC2? I mean, JADC2 has been around now for three years. Who's got the lead? Kath Hicks got very mad at her and said, the question isn't who, the question is what? We need to be talking about what JADC2 is. I got a good laugh out of that one because I think we all know what JADC2 is. We've been talking about that now forever. I think the big question is like, who's got the thumb on their forehead saying, go do this at the joint level, deliver capability to the combatant commands where they need it. I think that they, the department has an idea of who it is. They just might not want to say out loud yet. Get in front of Congress. There's probably some competing agendas. Yeah. The government tends to live in abstraction and not want to say, here's an individual with this mission and you're going to go deliver. It's a fireman problem. Yeah. It's a fireman problem. I tell this to my team all the time. I've been telling this. So the fireman problem is the boss walks in to the conference room with all the staff and says, hey, there's a fire in the hallway. Guys got to put the fire out. And everybody looks at each other. And they're like, I'm not a fireman. I don't have a hose. Then a week goes by, two weeks go by, another meeting. Boss comes back in. Hey, there's fires bigger out there. Probably needs to get put out. Everyone's like, I don't have an ax. It's not me. I'm not the fire chief. Then finally, like the whole building's on fire. Everybody's dying. And so, okay, now we need to put this crisis fire out. You're right. The department doesn't do task purpose and state very well. Because to be quite frank, it will mean upsetting somebody somewhere. And typically at that level, it's more of a kind of team consensus type thing, especially in like today's environment. I think if you go back 10, 15 years, if you go back to Gates, he didn't care who was upset. He wanted an MRAP. He got his MRAP. He probably pissed off a lot of people. I don't see us in that place with the current kind of structure that we've got. 
the MRAP is super popular again because yes, we're getting into great power competition. Everyone like reflects back on the MRAP and my colleague Jim Hasek has a book out on it and all that stuff. But for me, at least, it's just, look, the Secretary of Defense was basically like the program manager for that thing, and his attention is not going to be unlimited. How do we think about this in terms of scale so that you can move fast at a purpose across a whole range of programs? And of course, there's this new industry commission from the Atlantic Council, chaired by Mark Esper and Deborah Lee James. You are an industry commissioner on that. What are your thoughts here on what you think needs to happen? Because you're saying all this acquisition reform will get recommendations in a couple of years and then implementation, it'll be way too late. What do we need to do on that front? Yeah, I feel very strongly about any kind of discussion on reform or the kind of think tanky stuff that's going on right now is tie it to a date where we assess that there could be a conflict and then back plan everything from there. And if anything you're talking about is a reform that is not going to have an impact by that date, then it's probably, it's worth talking about. And there's a worthy end state for that, but it's not the thing that I personally care about. And what I see is on the whole, there's a lot of people talking about things that matter in 2035. And God forbid that we're wrong, then who's talking about innovation between now and 2027? And yeah, that to me is a niche spot in the kind of think tanky space that people aren't really focused on. Everybody wants to talk about emerging tech priorities and R&D and acquisitions reform that, in my opinion, doesn't deliver what we need when we need it. If someone said, hey, Colin, you're going to run a think tank project for the next year, it would all be focused on what can be done between now and 2025 in order to deliver something by 2027. And to be quite frank, it involves some crazy things. Hey, I understand that Title 10 is services, man, train, and equip. However, that's failed. And if you talk to the combat commands, they'll tell you that's failed. So let's get crazy and give combat commands a lot of R&D money to build people, right? Because they can't do it with the people they have now. They're in the, there's a fire at the door right now. We got to put it out every single week. How can we experiment with some authorities like that with Congress? How can we experiment with QEs at lower parts of the department with longer terms? How do I get a rickover in place for the next five years somewhere? for a capability that really matters. And I don't know, I have personal opinions on what some of those capabilities are. A lot of them, in my opinion, are not emerging technologies anymore. They've emerged, they're out in the commercial space. It's how do I get it in the hands of a warfighter? How do I ensure that the contracts are in place so that when we need them, we can rapidly crap out 1,000 or 1,500 of these things or 10,000 of them. You remember they were talking about Doug Small, the Admiral in the Navy as being the Rickover for JADC2 and Overmatch. I often think about this too. It's just like, we used to have like founder-led programs, like a Rickover, like an Admiral Red Rayborn, like a, a McLean from, from China Lakes. We just don't seem to have them. It's not like the personality and the leadership drives the program. It's like the program drives like the organizations and the people. What's your thought on that? Right now, they rotate every two years to another leader, just the cycle of manpower and like how things are. So they're not incentivized to take risks. Everybody is, I just need to do my thing for two years, sustain this and be out. Where there have been PMs that are super aggressive, guys like Drew Kukor, Colonel Kukor, they, they wind up not getting a star. And so that people look at that and go, okay, I don't really want to be like that. So it's a, to me, it's a balance between the individual wanting what the individual wants and the individual needing to do what's right for the country. When it comes to, in my kind of Colin's opinion on what the department needs or what the U.S. government needs, 
I think Rickover and the nuclear Navy is a really good example at the service level. I personally think that something like Project, the Manhattan Project, I'm reading the American Prometheus right now. It's a great book. That is probably something that we could use for certain technology areas outside the normal construct of Title 10, where you keep somebody in place for seven years there and there's a defined end state. The interesting thing about the Manhattan Project is that service, the Department of War and service development on like bombs did not stop during World War II, right? Everybody made, was making a better bomb site, better fins, larger payloads throughout the time that there was this other part of the department that was working on a revolutionary capability that basically changed the strategy of how we fight wars. I think that something like that could probably be a really good example at the conceptual level for what the department needs now, which is not a zero sum, hey, the army or the navy or the air force is going to do it so nobody else can do it. But it is a, yes, let them continue to do their thing. How do we find some money to build something on the side that can jump everybody ahead 10 years? And right now, that's I think Congress is probably okay with looking at something like that because they're looking back and saying, hey, we're just not seeing the results. I think the combat commands would also be super supportive of something like that. Services, I'm not 100% sure about. It's taking away something that's rightfully inherently theirs. But I think if you actually had them take a step back and say, assess, are we have we done the right thing? Have we delivered what's needed over the last 10 years or 15 years? they're honest with themselves, they'd probably say, no, no, we're not. Might work for the infantry battalion or the F-16 squadron, but it's not right for the joint force. You know, one of the things that, at least in this acquisition world, is no one has the authority to say yes and actually do something unless it gets all the way up to the vice or chief of staff level or the secretary level. And so the whole system is basically, if those people want to pivot the service and Congress is on board, then they can. And we've seen that with the Marine Corps. Commandant Berger is trying to push towards this Force Design 2030. And Congress actually seems to be on board for the most part. They're like divesting from their own things and they're not asking for new money. They're just doing it within their own funding. Do the rest of the services need to do something similar or is there a challenge area? Does this actually help us get to the transformation within the time frame you need, we need or does it not? Yeah, the interesting. So I'm a Marine, and so I'll speak from personal column and not Marine Corps column here. Future Force 2030. So the time frame there, in my opinion, is probably not right. My biggest fear about Force Design 2030 or Future Force 2030 is the dip in capability will happen at the worst possible time this decade. Do I think that the concept of divesting from certain certain platforms to create a more expeditionary and mobile force is the right answer? Yeah, I think I do. The one thing about the Marine Corps is, and I think it's just in general, when it comes to people telling me, okay, if you're going to do something crazy and build unmanned autonomous systems, what's the .mlpf and what's the DTOT associated with that? I think looking at Ukraine is a really great example. So what do, you, what do we need in 2027? We need military comprised of individual people who are flexible and smart. That means that they were trained to do some job, and now they're able to do some completely different job. Why? Because the technology in their hands at that point is very different from what they had when they were trained or educated even prior to training. And I think when we look at uh, it's a very rigid, flexible service, right? I'm an intelligence officer. I can't go do artillery. But if you handed me a name a company's loitering munition and an iPhone, could I steer that around? Yeah, I could because I played Xbox as a kid. So... That's the type of person I think that we need in the force. I think the Marine Corps has traditionally been pretty good about being flexible and adaptive when it comes to that. I'm probably more concerned with some of the other services 
gut feeling on Future Force 2030. I think that the Commandant is driving it. I think that on the whole, members of the Marine Corps are bought into it. However, I still see things like, hey, we just awarded a contract to a large OEM for the amphibious combat vehicle. And we're going to get 300 of those things to replace the AAV. If you look at that contract, the components for that are going to be super proprietary. And when you're in the first island chain, you're never, if that thing breaks down, you're never going to get those parts. So the kind of like innovative thought process on the acquisition side, which by the way was seven years ago because went through multiple RFIs and prototyping and lower production. And now we're like, yay, we're going to buy 300 of these things. Nobody said, hey, I need to be able to have a Marine go to advanced auto parts Philippines and get parts for that thing, right? But that's what we're in. We're committed to this and we're going to buy all these parts. So I don't know. It just makes me, it, it makes me a little nervous about the words Marine Corps saying with the capability that they're buying and how those things add up. Well, relative, I definitely would agree with that in terms of like the Air Force, for example, with agile combat employment. We, I don't think we've seen any investments that make, make sure like you can actually be distributed, right? And actually sustain these things. The Marine Corps, maybe it is like a 2030 thing, but they have been investing in 3D printing at the point of need and like contested logistics things in a way that the rest of the services just don't seem to care about. And I think I agree with you, though, that maybe those capabilities and the ability to do that in a denied place won't be there in 2025, but it seems like they're thinking about it. Yeah, so the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, McWill, is definitely looking at, so it's the R&D arm of the Marine Corps, is definitely looking at how, and O&R on how to acquire and deliver some non-traditional capabilities outside of the Marine Corps program offices that are buying hundreds of name a name a large platform i still think though that on the whole there's a cadre of marines that have spent a lot of time in afghanistan and iraq and view problems that way so here's a great example i was at the pentagon a couple months ago in my marine corps capacity we had a big discussion with the mefs and ppno hosted it there's a guy sitting next to me. He was a Leftwich winner, which means he was the best Marine Corps company commander of his year. It's a big deal in the Marine Corps, infantry officer. And I asked him, hey, he's going out to three map. He's going to go to Okinawa. Hey, if you're in the fight in a couple of years, what vehicle are you driving around the Philippines? Or name a name an island. He's I'll be in a I'll be in a Humvee or an MRAP. And I looked at him, like, dude, your TO weapon when you get there is not an M4. It's not a MRAP. It's not a Mark 19 grenade launcher in your MRAP. It's a GSA credit card, and you're going to go rent a car, a truck, and you're going to drive around that thing. That's how it's going to be. Why? Because a DF-21 from China isn't going to be stopped by an MRAP anyway, and you're not shooting your M4 at a, at a bunch of bad guys shooting an AK-47 back at you. You're guarding airfields and rapidly moving around the island, trying to get logistics in, trying to survive, manage your signature. That's what you're doing. I don't think that concept is there at a lot of levels in the Marine Corps yet. So how do you train to that? Right now, he's going to go to Okinawa, and he's going to go to the field, and he's going to have his Humvee. His whole, he'll got 27 Humvees for his infantry company. So the right answer is how do you get a flexible person who can adapt really quickly to something that they're not familiar with and, and then gain that knowledge and then ensure it goes to the rest of the force rapidly? So it might not be that company commander. It might be his boss. It might be his boss's boss. But how can we say, hey, we're going to be, we're going to think about problems differently? I don't know. 
No, sorry, on the Marine Corps thing, the divestment piece, probably not the best answer. The way they did it, in my opinion, probably not the best way to do it. You never want to just give things up without getting funding back. And so I think that one will probably haunt the Marine Corps. And when it when you look at some of these GOs and other people writing the letters, there's probably two reasons. One is how we did the divestment from a funding perspective. Then the other is that they weren't consulted. So it's a little bit of individual pride there. Yeah. And the Navy itself has a major force structure problem in the 2020s. We don't know whether that's going to be resolved or not. Elaine Lurie is pretty pissed off at it. Some Congress people are. It seems like either you just fund those ships or not, grow the top line or not. Is there, because it seems like what you're saying here is, I agree with where they're trying to move, but the timing of this is incredibly dangerous. So is there any other way around it besides just like saying, hey, I know the U.S. has spent a bunch of money on all these other areas and we're in an inflationary environment and the debt did blah, 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 but this has to happen. When you say this, you talk, you're talking about, talking about all the different changes that they're trying to do. I'm just the changes they're trying to do, but also plussing up the top line to a trillion dollars or whatever it is that you're going to sustain what you have now, but then you're also moving to the new paradigm at the same time, as opposed to like everyone just says, oh, divest to invest. It's a broken strategy. Is that true or not? Yeah. The top line is going to be a trillion dollars. Just wait and see. It's going to happen. If It'll be close this year, and then with inflation, it's going to 2024. It'll be a trillion. Trillion it, is the new billion, huh? <laughs> yeah. When it comes to the gray hole ships, I like if you look at the Marine Corps problem, it is a legit. It is it's very similar to what Bill Plant said, right? Which is I have production weapon systems, weapon systems, munitions primarily. The Marine Corps problem is how do I sustain a joint force and myself in an area that is very difficult to get things into, and then things will die. Having more Greyhill ships in that scenario is probably not super useful anyway. It's going to be, how do I get things probably slowly, looking at how the cartels move stuff around but with a little bit better tech from Guam into the island chains and just having a rotation, 10,000 of those things. That's how we need to approach the problem. So much more distributed. Is that who owns those? The Navy? No, probably not. Those are Marine Corps ships. So it's just a different way of approaching the problem. So the Marine Corps and the Army will have more ships than the Navy? <laughs> yeah, but from a different mission, though. Yeah. And maybe not a ship. I don't know the technical definition of a ship. Boat. I probably should as a Naval Academy grab, but I don't. The other thing I think is interesting is moving. So the initial kind of wave to move in, there's probably some non-traditional ways that we would look at that, which is take HKIA, for example, and the evacuation out of Afghanistan. A lot of people look at that debate right or wrong, doing it strategically, debate right or wrong, we saw this coming or not. One of the kind of not as well credited takeaways that I took away from that is we are the only country on the planet that can move 75,000 people across the world in 96 hours. And we do it not by good planning, not by good command and control. It's just by pure logistics and spending money. And so if we had to do the same thing in the Pacific theater, we could do that as well. It's going to involve commercial shipping, commercial airlines, moving people and stuff really rapidly before the theater is set. And then those things can't enter the theater. They enter at their own risk. And then it's going to involve adaptive, flexible people on the ground. They might not have their Humvee. They might have whatever they trained with, but they can, I don't even know what's the word, scrummage for it or whatever and get what they need. And that's like a different force. 
So I don't know. How we fight can be very different from, I think, how we're programmed to think about the fight right now. So as we wrap up here, I want to bring it back to the acquisition space and what you guys are working on at Applied Intuition. Where are you guys going? And from a business perspective, what keeps you up at night? Ooh, let's see. Applied makes commercial autonomy software for trucking and automotive primarily. So generally speaking, in the commercial space, we started out looking at startups like us. So companies that did not have a lot of cars or trucks driving around, but required simulation software to drive those miles in simulation. Over the years, we've added a lot of the larger OEMs to our customer portfolio. So these people have thousands, millions of vehicles driving around. We've extended beyond just simulation for autonomy software to data management and then some on-vehicle software work as well. Because one of the things that we've realized is on the whole, on-vehicle software is not that great. My CEO asked me to come in and build a government team. So we do defense and we do transportation primarily. Most of what I focus on is defense. Most of my team here is defense. And so we're taking our commercially developed software with a lot of investment dollars and a lot of users using it already. And I spent the last year looking primarily at the army and PEO ground combat systems. So where in the army did they have requirements already at a program office? I joke with my team, I have one rule. The rule is only talk to 06s and 05s with money which basically means talk to programs of record and everybody else I just tend to ignore. And that's worked out relatively well for us in the last year. Where we're headed is in the maritime and aerial spaces. Very similar, very similar kind of use case and very similar approach that we're going to take. What keeps me up at night? Yeah. From a business perspective, I joked earlier that our biggest competitor was the Army over the last year. And that's in like the mid-TRL R&D space. I think if there weren't enough money to go around, then that would keep me up at night for sure. But what we've seen is the program offices are funded to take what's coming out of the mid-TRL, high-TRL, and then take it that last mile and then field it. And so they've got the funding required to do that, and they're willing to go to commercial and do it. What keeps me up at night from a business perspective? So just my company is not a national security company. We are a commercial company. I have hundreds of engineers back in Mountain View that wake up every day and their their kind of sole thought in life is how do I keep a car on the road, not hit a pedestrian, stop at a stop sign. They don't wake up and think, hey, China in four years or China in five years. So we're not a sharp company. Our investors did not invest in this company as a national security company. But what I've seen is actually super encouraging, which is engineers learning DUD problems and becoming very interested and passionate in wanting to deliver this capability. And it's probably more on a technical passion perspective, which is, hey, these are hard, challenging problems, and therefore I want to dedicate my time and resources to solve them, which is actually interesting to me. When I was on Maven, we had the Google fiasco, which is one of the more public instances of Maven. And I do think when I joined the team a year ago, I was a little nervous about going to Silicon Valley and thinking, hey, we're going to get six months into this and then the company's going to get cold feet or there'll be some kind of protest. We haven't seen anything like that at all. And honestly, what I've seen is some of our commercial customers also jumping into this space, having seen what we're doing on the simulation side. So bringing their autonomy software into like the Army, for example, or the Air Force. That's super encouraging to me. I think that's where we need to go. This country. Great. Any last thoughts for our audience? Yeah, I think I'll go back to where I started at the beginning, which is working with the Department of Defense from industry 
can seem like overwhelmingly frustrating at times. And I facetiously joke when we talk about Catholics earlier that you need to invest in a government team. Having been in the government and given many contracts and work closely with small, non-traditional software companies like my own, the thing that we would always recommend to them is like bring, start a government team. If you're serious about doing this work with the government, then start a government team. Government team consists of some BD people. It consists of cybersecurity, consists of, so for DOD risk management framework and all the information assurance requirements, it consists of a legislative policy team, so government relations, and it might consist of a marketing team, and then all your customer-facing engineers. So how do I understand the government's, the DOD's requirements, and then relay that back to my engineering managers and product managers so they can build this. If you're in this space and kind of dabbling in it, then you'll probably continue to dabble in it forever because it's just too hard. The government's not going to reform itself and bend over backwards to help you out. It's just not designed that way. Lockheed Martin's lobbyists are never going to permit that. So take the leap, make the investment. There are lots of great people coming out of the DUD that are willing to help as well and have the knowledge. So that's my advice. Colin Carroll, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Yeah, Eric, this has been great. Thanks, man. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.